I would be remiss if I said that this was an easy chapter for me to study this week because I don't know about you guys, but when I'm reading through the Bible, I don't often focus on the chapters that lead up to the most famous chapters because chapter 20 is what? It's the Ten Commandments. And people all over the world have heard of the Ten Commandments, but I don't know that I've ever taken the time to study through the chapter leading up to the Ten Commandments. You might say, why does that chapter even matter? Well, let's get to that. Getting ready. So here we have, in chapter 19, God has birthed a new nation. And, And really, it started all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, when he called one man apart from all the other people on earth, and he said, I'm going to set you apart, and I'm going to have a special relationship with you. I'm going to reveal myself to you, and those who bless you will be blessed, and those who curse you will be cursed. And then through that, he birthed a, a small family, a family that was nearly impossible because when Abraham and Sarah had their first child, they were in their 90s, an impossible circumstance. But God picked them because he wanted to reveal himself to the whole world, but he chose to reveal himself to the whole world through his relationship with Abraham. And so in chapter 19, we see fast forward, they have been in bondage to a nation as slaves for 400 years. And God says, it's time for you to leave Egypt. And I'm going to make you a nation. I'm going to give you the land that I promised Abraham. And so as he's continuing to further his relationship with this nation, we find ourselves in chapter 19. It says in the third month, after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, and if you remember, God miraculously delivered them from the hand of Pharaoh through signs and wonders. On the same day that they came out of the land of Egypt, they came to the wilderness of Sinai. So they come to this desert place. So three months fresh out of Egypt, three months in the wilderness. But they're not in this wilderness or this desert alone. They're actually in this wilderness with God. They've been called apart to be with God for a time. If you remember in previous studies, I've talked about how when, when uh, Jesus was baptized, immediately the Spirit of God drove him out into the wilderness for a time of fasting and prayer. And it is there where he learned to obey through suffering. He learned to say no to his flesh and to listen for the voice of God, though he is God. He had to learn that, just like you and I do. And yet this nation, having just been born, has been in this place for three months, led by God to specific places. Verse 2 says, They had departed from Rephidim and had come to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. And this is not a camping trip that you or I would go on. Because what do we do when we're going camping? We take more food than we need. We take more stuff than we need. And we basically roll our houses out into the woods, right? We, we buy one of those campers that basically is a rolling home. It's not really camping. That's not what they were doing. They carried all their stuff. They didn't, and, and then they got out to the wilderness. They didn't have enough food, but for a few days, they didn't know how long they were going to be gone, nor could they carry enough food for how long the journey would take. So they were going to have to trust God, not their own preparation. And as they arrive out there, it says, Israel camped there before the mountain. And so this is a mountain in the peninsula, the Sinai Peninsula. And so now they're encamped before the mountain of God and waiting instructions. So verse 3, Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel. So I have a message for you, Moses, but this message isn't just for you, it's for your, the people I've called you to shepherd. Verse 4, the message. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And so he says, you've seen how I handled your enemies. Who were their enemies? Very physical, real people, the Egyptians. 
And if you remember, finally, Pharaoh lets them leave his nation to go to the wilderness to worship. And as he leaves them, they cross the Red Sea. And then immediately the Pharaoh decides, you know what? That was a poor choice. I just sent my labor force away and we're going to need to rebuild after all these plagues. And so he sends his chariots and his soldiers to cross through the Red Sea on dry ground. And then as he sends them through, the Lord gives safe passage to the Israelites. And then he basically just drowns the Egyptian army. He says, you see how I have dealt with your enemies. How has he dealt with them? He destroyed them. Don't mess with Israel. Don't mess with God's people because God takes it personally. But then it says there, you see how I've dealt with you. He's hearkening them back to how he has taken care of them from their birth. Now, maybe you've never done this, but I have. I come to a circumstance where I have to discipline or say something hard to one of my kids. Anytime I have to say something hard to them, I always take time to say, you know that we've taken care of you all the way through your entire known life. Ever since you were born, we fed you. We changed your diapers. We made sure you have a place to live. We've, we've consoled you when you were upset. We've done all of these things. I'm getting ready to share something hard with you, but I want you to know that this is just a continuation of how I've cared for you throughout your life. It's just that now my relationship with you, it's changing. Now you're going to have to understand a little bit more and become more autonomous. That's what the Lord's getting ready to do, right? He's going to give his law, which many people think, oh, it's just God controlling us and trying to keep us from enjoying things. But really what his law is, is it's his new manifestation to the children of Israel of how much he really loves them. He's no longer going to force them to do anything. He's going to say, here's my commandments. And if you love me, you'll keep them. And when you keep them, there will be blessing attached. There will be a blessing attached to obeying just like a fence in a yard. Don't climb over the fence because beyond the fence, there's danger. That's what we tell our children. And, and if we just let them run out into the street, the question becomes, are we really loving them if we just give them over to whatever they want? And here the Lord is getting ready to get very specific about the things that will keep them safe. So he uses this analogy here. He says, you noticed how I handled the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and I brought you to myself. So I want to camp there for a little bit. Get it? Pun intended. They're encamped. Now I'm going to camp there. But he says, uh, I bore you, I sustained you as on eagles' wings. He's comparing himself to an eagle, which is interesting because there are multiple places throughout Scripture that God refers to himself as an eagle. Now, does that mean we need to go home and print up a picture of an eagle and put it on the wall and say, this is my God? No, because we're not supposed to make a graven image. We're not supposed to, God's not an eagle. He's saying, I'm like an eagle because he knows that we understand and study creation. And so those things are all there to point us to the ultimate eagle, the one who is eagle-like. And so what's interesting about this is that uh, in, in, if you have ever studied eagles, and I, I Googled it, so I haven't really studied it, but what eagles do is that as soon as their eaglets are born, they crack out of the shell, they got needs, right? Just like our babies. And those needs are all to be met by the parents. And so one parent will stay there, keep them warm because they don't have any feathers yet. And the other parent will fly away and go get something for it to eat, something that's proper for the eaglet's age. And eventually it becomes shredded meat, which man, I want to be an eagle because I like pulled pork. But here the animals understand something that in order to be good parents, they got to provide for their children. And in some ways, they're better than us as parents. Uh, and, and at the same time, they provide a place for them to rest. But there comes a time in the eagle's lifespan where the eagle and the mother eagle start to make it less comfortable for their child. And so what they do is they start uh, bringing food, but they don't cut it up for them. You've done this. 
And then they start making them take care of themselves. They stop cleaning them. And then they stop staying in the nest where it keeps them warm. They start to make the nest less comfortable. Is it because they don't care about the eagle? No, it's because they care about the eagle. They want the eagle to become a mature eagle on its own that's able to have its own children and sustain itself. And so what we do is we, we see that the eagle eventually gets so obtuse to the eaglet being there that it starts to take sticks out of the nest, starts to break it apart, starts to shake the branches, and it starts to shake things up. And I have there for you a little graphic that says, if God starts shaking your nest, he's actually preparing you to fly. He's not trying to kill you. You know, he's, he's not trying to make you uncomfortable just to be mean. He's actually trying to get you to spread your wings a little bit and try them out. Because what happens to, to an eaglet if the nest fails it is it has to try to save itself. And guess what? It's got these things that it hasn't ever used before called wings that start with these little, you know, if, if the nest gets taken away too early, then the, the feathers won't sustain it. But at the right time, if it's shaken out of its nest, it's going to start flapping and go, whoa, these things do something. I wondered why I didn't have thumbs. You know, now, now I've got wings instead. I, I'm made to fly. I didn't even know that. And so these eagles care about their children in some ways more than we do. <laughs> what do we do? We make sure they're insured within the household till they're 26. We don't want them to leave. And, and we don't think about it that way. We're trying to take care of them, right? Good parents take care of all their children's needs. But we've been taught this lie that if we stop taking care of all their needs, that we don't care for them. But in some ways, if we continue to take care of all their needs, we're kind of doing them a disservice. And we're all guilty of this. But the Lord, being the perfect father, is not. He starts to, now that he's bore them on their wings, he's going to start to disturb their nest. He's going to start making life a little uncomfortable. He's going to start revealing more of his character to them, which if you've ever had the character of the Lord revealed to you, it should become uncomfortable. It should be. And so turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 9 through 12. There Moses, at the end of his ministry, is recounting all that God has done for the nation of Israel. And in Deuteronomy chapter 32, he has a song that he's written. And in verse 9, he sings this, For the Lord's portion, his inheritance. Did you know God has an inheritance coming to him? It's his people. The Lord's portion is his people. And Jacob is the place of his inheritance. He found him, meaning Jacob, in a desert land. And in the wasteland, a howling wilderness, he encircled him. He instructed him, and he kept him as the apple of his eye. By the way, the safest place to be protected on your eye is the apple, the very focal point where it can see from, because the eyelid, by God's design, it's, it's like a minutia of a fraction of a, se a second where your eyelid, if there's something dangerous coming, can close very quickly. And the Lord is even quicker than that to be able to protect those who are precious to him. But it says that he kept Jacob as the apple of his eye, as the focal point of his love. As an eagle stirs up its nest and hovers over its young. There's that analogy again. Spreading out its wings and taking them up, carrying them on its wings. So the Lord alone led him and there was no foreign God with him. So he's just talking about how so far he's taken care of him. You might have heard the hymn before. He's carried me safe thus far, and his grace will carry me home. The idea is if he's going to drop out of the nest, you know what also is going to happen? If they falter, he won't let them hit the ground. He's actually going to swoop down and lift them up. And it's a beautiful picture of God's protection. And there's another one in Isaiah 63, and then in Revelation chapter 12. All of God's protection over the nation of Israel. So as we move on in verse 5, this conversation continues. I can't get verse 5. There it goes. Therefore, verse 5, sorry, there it is. 
Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be special treasure to me above all people from all the earth, is, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So verse 5, he makes a covenant with his people. Now, a covenant is like we, we have in marriage. It's kind of probably the closest thing to a covenant. A covenant is an agreement that has promises involved. And God made a covenant with Abraham. And what's interesting is when he made a covenant with Abraham, Abraham was there and he was ready to make that agreement. And when he went to make the agreement, the animals were split. They would always kill animals. And then after they would kill the animals, they'd make an agreement between those animals, signifying if I don't keep up my end of the bargain, then may I be like these dead animals. But what's interesting is that as they're getting ready to make the covenant, Abraham passes out. He, he falls asleep. He's not able to do anything to keep the agreement. The Lord himself makes the agreement. And what it's saying is that the agreement is based upon God's promise, not what Abraham brings to the table. So in verse five, he says, if you will obey, Mosaic covenant is conditional. He says, if you, then I. If you will obey, then I will keep. So he says, you shall be a special treasure above all peoples. If you keep my, if you obey my voice and if you keep my covenant. Verse six, he says, if you'll do these things, if you'll keep this agreement, then you shall be a kingdom and a priest and a holy nation. You shall be a kingdom of priests. Well, what are priests? They are a person who stand before man to represent God, and they stand before God on behalf of man. So they represent both parties in the covenant. So you will become a blessing to the people who will bless me, and I'll make you a nation who will bless others on my behalf. So why does that matter? Well, if you've ever lived as a Jewish person, or if you've ever felt like that's God's arrangement, that we have to have priests, you recognize that without a priest, there's no one to atone for your sin. Now, we take for granted that we have someone to atone for our sin, and that is Jesus Christ. He is our high priest. But without someone to atone for sin, uh, there's no forgiveness. There's no sacrifice. There's no way to communicate with God because our sin separates us from God. There's no relationship. We're only separated from our creator. And when you're not in a relationship with God, with a priest, guess what happens? If you approach him as you are without any blood to cleanse you of your unrighteousness, you get smoked. Not just anybody can approach God. You have only the expectation of receiving judgment for your sin if you have no forgiveness of sin, if you have no cleansing of sin. And what's interesting is in Hebrews, in chapter 5, it says this, Every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God. He, he represents God to them. That the high priest may offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. That they can continually make sacrifices so we don't have to expect judgment. That's a beautiful thing. And he can have compassion on those who are ignorant. The high priest can have compassion on those who don't know any better and those who go astray since he, the high priest, is also subject to weakness. He's gone astray. He's been ignorant or unaware. Because of this, the high priest is required, as for the people, so also for himself, he's a man who has to make sacrifice for his own sin. And yet, no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron, Moses' friend, was also called to make atonement for his own sin. But I love the fact that our high priest is not someone who's subject to weakness, but was an always tempted as we are, and yet he never sinned. He fulfilled the law to the letter, 
And now, because of his sinlessness, but also understanding our weakness, his atonement for our sin doesn't have to be made for him. He's already had atonement for his sin. Uh, He's our atonement. He's the perfect lamb of God slain for you and I, so that now when we approach God, we kind of take it for granted. We don't have to, you didn't have to, before you came in the doors, kill an animal and spread its blood in all the right ways. Instead, because of that, he calls us to approach him, not based on our righteousness, not based on sacrifices we've made, but based on the subject that we trust in Jesus as our sacrifice. We don't need one. So that's what life is like with a perfect high priest. But notice, God has said back here in Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, he says, if you will obey my voice, if you will keep this covenant, keep up your end of the bargain, then you will receive blessing. But guess what the bad news is? The Bible shows it over and over and over again, page by page, book by book, that man continually says, I will. That sounds great, God. I'll do it. And that's what we do. We go, God loves me because of what I do. But the bad news is that every time we say, I will, we break our promise every time, every time, not just sometimes. Oh, I'll do better this time, God. You've, you might've prayed this. I have. I'll do better next time. And then guess what? I don't. I really stink at obedience. And then I live in condemnation and shame and fear and go, I let down God again. And he's surprised. But what I learned from Jesus is that he's never surprised. Think about it. Peter, on the night of Jesus' betrayal, he said, if everybody else forsakes you, I won't. But what did Peter do? (laughs) He strayed. He left just like everybody else did. At the first sign of danger, he fleed like a chicken. Which is funny because this week I saw a little uh, meme and it said, anybody that says that chickens are scared has never actually been around them because they're pretty mean. They're not very scared. (laughs) Maybe you can't relate to that, but I can't. Our chickens, when I try to get the eggs, they they do the whole thing where they chase you and they peck you. And it's kind of scary. They're little, but they're mighty. Um, But where was I going with that? Peter was a chicken. And we know that because after he forsook the Lord, the rooster crowed. Well, the Lord told him that would happen. The Lord said, Peter... Satan desires to sift you like wheat, but don't worry. I've prayed for you that you may not grow faint, that I'll restore you later. Uh, you don't know this about yourself yet, but you're gonna, you've got all these I will statements, but you're going to fail. But guess what? I won't. I won't fail you, Peter. But the new covenant says that Jesus showed up and said, I will do this. And because of what I will do, I will keep my word forever. I will never fail. So Jesus, in the New Testament, for us who are believers, he says to us, if you love me, you will keep the commandments. He didn't erase them. He didn't say they, don't know, they no longer matter. He says, if you love me, you'll show that you love me by obeying me. It's the same thing. But the, then he says this, and this is the gift We have a gift at salvation that many people don't know about as Christians, the gift of the Holy Spirit. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And then he goes on to say, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. So now I don't keep the commandments because I have to to avoid judgment. Now I keep the commandments because Jesus already did it for me. And then he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, but they won't be a burden to you because my Holy Spirit will empower you to do all the will of my Father, just like he did me. The dunamos, the power to overcome and to be victorious comes from God. He says, I'll save you. And he says, I'll give you the Holy Spirit and I'll sustain you. I'll give you the ability, the grace to be able to obey the commandments day by day but now we don't do it because we have to. Now we do it because we get to. 
We want to please the one who has done everything to please the Father for us. And so, verse 9, verse 8, sorry. Moses came and called for the elders of the people. He laid before them all the words which the Lord commanded him. And then all the people considered, excuse me, answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do it. And so Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in the thick of the cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. So, so far, Moses has been the priest. He's heard the word of the Lord. He's communicated that to the congregation and they've always believed him, right? No, many times he fulfills what God tells him to. They get to this spot, they sit still for a minute And then the people start to complain against Moses. And so God says, I'm going to give you some more help. I'm not only going to speak to you and tell you what the people need to hear, but I'm going to do it audibly so that they can hear in on our conversation and so that they'll have a reason to believe you forever. I'm going to back up your testimony. I'm going to solidify what they think may or may not have come from God which is interesting because it's kind of like old party lines. Any of you ever grow up with the, the old party line system on the phones? Uh, kids, this was before cell phones. There was wires. And um, <clears throat> basically, there would be one line that goes down a whole road. And it'd be so many people would be on one line. And if you're having an intimate conversation with your family member or your girlfriend or whatever, anybody that's connected to that line could just quietly, ever so carefully pick it up and they could listen in. And that's terrible, right? Because who knows what you're talking about? And many times, perhaps somebody picked it up just to talk and call somebody and they would accidentally, oh, whoops, sorry, click. But in this case, God says, I'm going to call you on the party line and I want them to pick up. I want them to receive the signal. I want them to hear directly from me that these words aren't yours, Moses, but they're mine. And what's interesting about that is it's going to be the Ten Commandments. We have a more sure word because we heard, they heard it directly from God, all two million plus of them. And when they heard it, God wasn't speaking to them. He was speaking to Moses. And so what we find from this is that God says, I'm going to speak in your hearing to the people, to you, so that they'll believe you, Moses. Which is interesting because the Gospel of John, over and over again, John the Apostle writes down, he says, I write down this account of what Jesus said and did so that you may believe who? Jesus. God speaks in their hearing so they would believe Moses. And now Jesus, God himself, speaks in their hearing so that they would believe the testimony of John and believe Jesus. And we have that account still today. It was written down so that we would believe Jesus. And so verse 10, well, verse 9, The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in the thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. So Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. And then the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people, consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes. And let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. And whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Not one hand shall touch the person who has touched the mountain, but he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near the mountain. So come near the mountain, but don't touch it. That's the message. So he's already said, behold, tell the people to get ready, consecrate them. Prepare them to receive the message. Tell them to get their their garments washed. And many old school preachers would say, see, you need to wear only your Sunday best. So the question I have, though, is 
does God want us to come with our Sunday best? And I would say, yes, he does. But is it about the clothing? Or is he interested in our hearts? I think many times people want to hear from God and they're wondering why he won't speak to them. And my current understanding is that it's not that he's not speaking to them. It's just that they're not ready to hear from him. Here he's telling them to wash their clothes. Hey, go wash your clothes. Deal with the outward dirtiness. He's telling them, get prepared to go receive from me. For some of you, that might mean get up a little earlier and deal with the things of the day before you come to church. Be awake when you show up. But I think what's going on here is he's saying, get ready because God's getting ready to speak. Much like John the Baptist. You guys remember the story of John the Baptist. In Luke chapter 3, he was the forerunner for the gospel. He was the forerunner for the words of Jesus. And in Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 1, I have there for you verse 7, but go to verse 1. And I won't read the whole thing like I did first service, but it gives the history of when John the Baptist started his ministry. But during that time, it says, verse 2, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he went into the region around the Jordan River, preaching a baptism of repentance for the removal of sin. He came preaching a baptism. What's a baptism? Sometimes words, we say them and we don't know what they mean. Well, a baptism was a bath. It was a ritual cleansing. They called it a mikvah. They would get into the water and they would come out. And this, this, basically what it was is a symbol of getting ready to hear the word of God. They would take a bath. He says, before you hear the message of the one who's coming after me, that's what John's saying, you need to get your heart right. You get your might right. You might say, check your heart. Here, the Lord is saying, cleanse your heart, all that depends upon you. He says here, for the removal of sin. And then he quotes Isaiah. He says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough way smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. The salvation of God's coming, and I want you to be able to see it. And in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall what? They shall see God. Now, does that mean that the, the crowd around when Jesus showed up and got baptized couldn't see the man? No. Everybody saw Jesus as a physical person. But to be able to see him as the salvation that came to take away the sin of the world, the Lamb of God... That's something you can't see by an outward appearance. How can I see the kingdom of God coming unless I'm prepared for it? And so John the Baptist shows up and says, repent of your sin. Cleanse yourselves. Get ready to hear. And so there was a crowd there that go, what do you mean? What in the world is this crazy guy in camel skins saying? And so they asked him, verse 10, the people asked him, saying, what, what do you want us to do then? What do we need to do to have this repentance that you're talking about that apparently is not what we thought it was? And he answered and said to them, if you have two tunics, if you have two tunics, give one to those that don't have any. <laughs> Treat the poor well. <laughs> don't hoard things to yourself. And he who has food, share it with those do who don't have any. And then the, of all the people to show up, tax collectors showed up. And tax collectors were the off-scouring. They had betrayed their own people to serve Rome. So the Jews hated them, but they showed up. There was a hunger in them for something more than money could buy. They showed up and they, they listened to John the Baptist. They're like, we want to get right, but we don't know how. So the tax collectors came to be baptized. This is a powerful thing. And they said to the teacher, what shall we do? 
And he said to them, don't collect any more than what you're appointed to collect for taxes. See, they would extort. They would collect taxes and then they'd add a little bit on the amount so they could keep some for themselves above and beyond their pay. Likewise, there were Roman soldiers. You can imagine they'd be pretty hard-hearted. Not looked upon wise. They weren't allowed in the temple. Fine, we'll go to somebody that will allow us. John the Baptist was harsh, but he spoke to everybody who came. The soldiers asked him, what shall we do to repent and get our hearts right? And he said to them, do not intimidate anyone with your force. Instead, don't accuse falsely, but instead be content with what you're paid. Don't use your power to to extort people of their money, but instead be content with what you're already given, which was plenty. And so many times we want to hear from God. Maybe you're different than me, but I want to hear from God, but I feel like there's something blocking his voice from getting to me. I believe he's always speaking. But how do we prepare ourselves to go and worship and hear the word of God fully? I want to hear all of it, not just some of it. How do I clean the wax out of my ears? And and what I believe we're supposed to do is do what Jesus said. He said there was a man. No, he said, when you go to worship and you come to offer a gift at the altar and you remember before you offer your gift that you have sinned against someone, He said, lay down your gift, leave the altar, go and deal with your sin, confess it, repent of it, apologize, ask them to forgive you. And whether or not they do, that's on them. But go be obedient with what you know is right. And then, having cleansed your life of that thing, then come worship. I tell you what, you'll hear the word of God because God expects us to act on what we already know and then he gives us more. If you want to know what God has for you today, respond in obedience to what he told you before. And then come again. And then, and it's just this process. And it's a lifelong process. Eating the word of God, obeying it, experiencing the blessing that's attached to that, going out and living your life, living righteous according to what you know, and then coming back for more. And and you'll find that there will be abundance involved in that. And so Moses, in the same way, he's saying, get ready. John the Baptist was saying, hey, get ready. God's getting ready to speak. God himself is getting ready to speak, Jesus. And then Moses was really doing the same thing. He says, hey, I'm just the forerunner. I'm just preparing the way. Get ready. God's going to speak audibly. And so he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Verse 16 I don't think I read all that. So verse 13, not a hand shall touch him. I read that part. Verse 14, so Moses went down from the mountain to the people. He sanctified the people and they washed their clothes. They prepared themselves. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not come near your wives. In other words, don't don't have sexual intercourse with your wives. That's what he's saying. For a time so that you're not thinking about worldly things, but you're preparing your heart to hear from the Lord. Now, does that mean that sexual intercourse or the physical relationship between a man and, a, and his wife is, is sinful? No, but it can't be distracting, right? And so Paul said in the New Testament, he said, don't ever withhold yourself physically from your spouse, except if you both agree to for a time in order to pray and fast and seek the Lord. And so here he's saying the same thing. God's getting ready to speak. Don't let anything distract you. So then it came to pass, and and this would also speak to ceremonially being unclean in the Old Testament. So then it came to pass, verse 16, on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. This was an overwhelming experience. They were supposed to be in awe. What's interesting about this is remember the first time that Moses met God face to face? It wasn't a mountain on fire. What was it? It was a bush. 
He, he gave him a glimpse. But I wonder why he didn't show on the mountain. Do you think it was because Moses wasn't ready to receive that yet? I think God gives us a glimpse. And then as we're obedient, he gives us a bigger glimpse. And as we receive that, he gives us a bigger glimpse. He matures us in our understanding of him. And by the way, as, as awe-inspiring as this moment must have been, it's still only a glimpse of who God is. Can you imagine a mountain? Imagine just our small mountain, Shepherd Mountain, out the window there. On fire, thunder, God descending upon it, smoke and ashes and an earthquake. We'd be running for the hills. We would do anything we could to get away. They needed a shepherd who had seen God before and was like, it's going to be okay. God's going to reveal himself and he is intimidating, but he's got a good word for us. So Moses and all the people are trembling at this sight. And it says there that there was a trumpet speaking, which the trumpet was this idea that it's a a call to assembly, just like in the military. They blow a trumpet. They all gather together. Something's getting ready to take place. And so in this scene, Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain, no closer. Now, Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long, and it became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. No one has royal fanfare or entry music like the Lord. I often think about it in sports. If somebody's coming out the bat, they always have entry music, right? And, and in basketball, it's the same way. They have, they have some, and, and wrestling, some of you are wrestling fans. You know, the soap opera for men. They have this entry music, and it's supposed to generate this hype. That's all just a small picture of what God deserves. All the hype in the world, and yet no man presents it. No CD plays it. But God himself, creation itself, declares the glory and the majesty and the honor and the might of God. He is no small God. He's no animal. He's no created thing. He's the God of creation. He's Lord of it all. And when he shows up, pomp and circumstance happens. It responds to him. And I believe that's what Jesus said, that if these here, on the day of his triumphal entry, when he entered, people cried out. But he said to the the people that were against it, they're like, Tell these people to shut up. They're blaspheming when they cry out to you. And yet, we know that when God shows up, if no one else cries out, the rocks will. And this is happening. That's when it's happened. When God shows up and the people just stood there, the mountain and the earth and the, the, the clouds, they cried out. They said, this is the one. Hear him. And so, Moses, in verse 17, he presents the people. And, and Paul later would say, I, I beg you, therefore, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable service. And as you receive the message, no longer be conformed to the message of this world, but let the word of God that you receive transform your life by the renewing of your mind. That's why it's so important to prepare ourselves to hear so that we can respond in obedience. And then our attention really is just a thanksgiving offering. Just showing up and saying, here I am, Lord, I'm yours. So Moses responds to the call of God. Notice here that Moses is the only one and Aaron that are called up to the presence of God to touch the mountain. Everybody else, keep your distance. That's the old covenant. You have to have a priest to approach me, somebody that's been prepared and cleansed. And yet the New Testament, the new covenant, is Jesus takes with him three disciples who are prepared, and they go up on the mountain based solely on the fact of who they're with. 
He doesn't say, I'm going up here, you stay back. He says, come with me. Come with me to the mountain of God. And then in his state, at the top of the Mount of Transfiguration, he stands there and he just peels back just a small layer of his humanity because he's fully God. He's fully man. He took on human flesh and the human flesh, when it was just slightly peeled back, they saw just a fraction of his glory. And then Moses, and they saw Elijah, who had seen his glory in the past. And they're all having this conversation, and other gospel writers talk about what they were talking about. But the disciples stand there, and even though they're on the mountain with Moses, they don't get smoked. They're on the mountain of God, and yet they're not destroyed because they came with Jesus. The covenant of grace of his mercy. And when they show up and they even say dumb things in the presence of God, Peter speaks up and says, oh, wow, this is amazing. Let's make booths for each one of you, for Elijah, Moses, and Jesus, which was a dumb thing to say because one of the gospel accounts saying said that Peter didn't know what to say, so he talked. Have you ever done that in the presence of God? You didn't know what to say, so you just talked. Guilty. Guilty. I've been guilty of that on Sunday mornings, and I'm sorry. Not knowing what to say, I talked. And yet what happens here is that God doesn't smoke him. The Father speaks from heaven and says, interesting, (laughs) this is my son. Why don't you listen to him? You don't need to speak. I'm speaking through him right now. And they saw it, and they, they beheld the glory of God. And later on, they would write about it. So, verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to gaze at the Lord, and many of them, they would perish if they entered the mountain. Also, let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. But Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, set bounds around the mountain and consecrate it. And then the Lord said to him, away, because he was thinking what you and I are thinking. Didn't he already say this? Didn't they already set boundaries? And God says to Moses, go down again and tell them again, and then come back up, you and Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and he spoke to them. See, there's a double warning in Scripture about those who would teach and those who would lead. There's a stricter judgment. James 3.1 says, Let not many of you be teachers, for there's a stricter judgment. But he said to the faithful minister, they deserve double honor. And so to the faithful minister, there's an importance, but to behold the word of God in a holy way. The fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One results in and good judgment. And so uh, there's this understanding of who God is and what he has done and what his son is to us. And so I don't know about you guys, but I got a, a stark, I, I, I struggled with this passage this week. And, and as I struggled through it, I was like, what am I supposed to teach from this? But the Lord just showed me I needed a reminder of his holiness. I'm grateful for Jesus and I'm grateful for grace. I'm grateful that I get to kind of take for granted the holiness of God because what Jesus has done, I can just walk in the door, don't have to kill an animal, don't have to pray through a priest, don't have to do any of that. I just walk in and go, hey, Lord, here I am. And he accepts me as I am because I'm his. I've been cleansed by the blood of the lamb, by Jesus. And yet, what it cost for that relationship is beyond what we can measure. Jesus being on the cross, brutally murdered, so that we don't have to go through the murder of religion. And so I want to close with Hebrews in chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. I thought it was Hebrews chapter 8. 
can't remember. I know. Oh, yes. I'm so glad Joy sits up front. She's bailed me out so many times. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18, there it is. For you, New Testament believer, have not come to the mountain that may be touched, that burned with fire, and to the blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure which, what was commanded, and if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I'm exceedingly afraid and I'm trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn. You are already registered in heaven. To God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. You've come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. You've come to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. And so, Lord Jesus, we thank you for this picture of your holiness. We thank you that you've offered your righteousness to us, even in speaking your law to us, your law of love that sets us free your law of liberty through Jesus. And so, Father, we come to you very grateful that you didn't show up this morning with smoke that could consume us and fire, but you showed up through your son Jesus, meek and mild and grace-filled and willing to forgive sin, but also still requiring repentance and faith. And so, Lord, we thank you for the better word in Jesus Christ. We thank you that you fulfilled all the requirements that when the Israelites said, we will, and then they didn't, that Jesus showed up as an Israelite and said, I will, and you did. And so now the law is completely fulfilled. And if we, if we trust in your son for his fulfillment of the law, we are looked at and looked upon as completely holy and righteous in your sight. And simply said this morning, Lord, I'm grateful for that. And I pray that everyone here can say that by faith as well. I'm grateful. If there is anyone here this morning, Lord, who has not yet come to you and said, I, I, I don't, I, what do you want me to do? Help them to trust in the blood of the lamb, to confess their sin, to receive your forgiveness and to walk out of this place renewed by your grace. We don't have to be afraid anymore. Your judgment was completely dealt with. And so, Father, we just confess we love you. Thank you for moving in our lives. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you even for giving us the ears to hear that message, not to just see Jesus as a person, but to receive the good news that he is the Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.